53, please. And for the next couple of times I'm going to speak, I want to do a, a supplement to what we've been learning in the Upper Room Discourse. And I realize we're in the middle of the study of the Upper Room Discourse. We're calling that TBS for TB efforts, and TBS stands for True Biblical Spirituality. And I tell you what, uh, Henry, you're never going to find a better passage about what Christianity should look like in our personal lives than what people call the Upper Room Discourse, because that's Jesus telling the guys, the believing apostles, how they can fellowship with him spiritually after he's no longer physically walking around with them or with us. But for the next two times I get to speak to you, I want to talk about some supplementary information we all need to know to better understand the rest of the Upper Room Discourse, which Lord willing will continue in a couple of weeks. So let me just start here. Uh, Jared, if I told you that uh, Debbie and I spent forever in the uh, checkout line at Walmart yesterday, what, what do I mean by that? I know I always, I always knew I liked uh, Carol Wanzer and, and, and your uh, humorous comment there just solidified you in the uh, TBF Pantheon. So you are... Uh, you are now officially uh, codified. Uh, if I were to tell you my new dress shoes weighed a ton, I think you'd know what I meant by that, but it would be kind of a figure of speech. If I told you I can remember distinctly, and I can, when I was in high school, a tropical storm hit in Beaumont, Texas, and it, it rained cats and dogs for three days. You know, if, I, if I talk with those kind of expressions, uh, you kind of get what I mean, but you realize I don't mean what I say, Emma. I'm not meaning that my shoes weigh 2,000 pounds. I don't mean what I say. I mean what I mean by what I say. So interpret these for me. When I say Debbie and I spent forever checking out at Walmart, what does that mean? I'm not talking about infinity. Yeah, just a long time, longer than you would expect, and it's kind of a pain, and, and we all have done that probably. If I say my new dress shoes weigh a ton, what does that mean? Now, if your English is second language, it's going to be hard for you to figure stuff like that out because you've just learned in your vocabulary words a ton is, uh, we're not metric here, you know, a ton is what? 2,000 pounds. So if a preacher, and preachers never lie, nor do car salesmen, uh, it, if preachers tell you that their dress shoes weigh a ton, that's got to mean 2,000 pounds. No, it just means a lot heavier than you expect. And when we say it was raining cats and dogs, we don't mean it was raining dozens of small domesticated mammals. We all know that. And uh, that's the way language works. And that's the way the Bible works, too. Uh, we're not talking about mammals falling, uh, but we're able to decode what is said. And when it comes to the Bible, the Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means by what it says, which is one reason uh, people with some teaching gifts like John or Brad will always have job security because somewhere somebody needs us to help them understand the fine nuances of Scripture. I'm going to try to show you how that works in an interesting passage. You've turned to John 6, 53 and 54. 
pretend like you've never heard anybody explain this or you've never read it or you've never fitted it into the other context around it. Let's say this first time you hear this. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. What? Let me explain it. He who eats my flesh, Jesus said, and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Bible doesn't mean what it says. The Bible means what it means by what it says, and we're going to show you how that works in those two verses. And as we continue to go through the Upper Room Discourse, there's going to be several statements by the Lord that need to be carefully understood, and so we're going to try to refine our capacity to understand scripture this morning i think that's really a good thing to do at church myself so let's pray for teachability let's pray for our our troops our peace officers our firefighters and uh, andrew bowers lead us in that direction would you Thank you. Uh, I'm not going to say I'm going to show you some cartoons that uh, are funny. I'm going to show you some mildly amusing cartoons about how to figure out what things mean. Uh, we all heard the expression, cat got your tongue. Uh, if you ever travel with Mama Joe Dickinson for a hospital visitation uh, an hour or two away, if there was ever more than like 3.2 seconds of silence, she would be very offended. She'd say, what is this, the quiet hour? You know, uh, she never said, cat got your tongue, but she just uh, enjoyed talking uh, on trips and stuff. So it's just, but anyway, um, you know, that's not what we mean when we ask people a question, uh, cat got your tongue. Now, young, uh, Riley, have you, you know that expression? You familiar with that? That may be something for more old people, but it just means, uh, don't you have anything to say? Or you need to speak up. It'd be appropriate for you to say something. You're not saying anything. Was, hey, cat's got your tongue. Uh, icing on the cake. Special days cake boutique. You know this this uh, part of the message is brought to you by the special days cake boutique. And certainly you can use that literally. I mean, Janice literally puts uh, icing or is it fondant nowadays on the top of the cake, right? But uh, it means something that makes a good situation even better, or maybe a bad situation even worse. Uh, I fell down and broke my ankle on my way to work today, and then I went to the emergency room, and I didn't have my insurance card, and then when I finally got to work, the icing of the cake was they fired me. You know, we'd say something like that, and so we're not literally talking about cakes, but we're talking about adding things either to the good or the bad. Uh, put your foot in your mouth. Is that what that means? That's an expression just to say something that offends, upsets, upsets embarrasses, just say something inappropriate. 
is to put your foot in your mouth, right? Uh, example, seeing Mary is larger than normal. You're not supposed to notice stuff like that. John, so when is the baby due? Mary, I'm not pregnant. So John just puts his foot in his mouth. Couch potato, my favorite one, because I can relate to this guy, right? And that's a, you know, in the last 20 years, they invented that term. And it just means a person that spends a lot of time watching television with little or no physical activity. So stop being a couch potato, turn off TV, and go out and you know, throw a ball around or something like that, right? And then we, we talk about raining cats and dogs. It just means it's raining heavily. So my point is, uh, when we say it's raining cats and dogs, we don't mean it's raining cats and dogs, even though we say it's raining cats and dogs, right, Christian? We don't mean what we what we say. We mean what we mean by uh, what we say. And nobody means what they say all the time. And I think that's one big key to being a successful husband. Am I right, Aubrey? Derek has got to understand not what you say, but what you mean by what you say. And, and the longer you live together, the longer you can figure that out. Uh, nobody means what they say. They mean what they mean by what they say. And you might say, well, golly, how am I going to figure out what the Bible means if it doesn't mean what it says? Uh, basically, one word, context. And correlation is a larger use of context. So the Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means by what it says. And you can figure that out by context. All right? Let's reread our two verses that don't mean what they say, but they mean what they mean by what they say. Jesus said to them, in the middle of a much larger discourse where he said this four different ways very clearly, now he wants to say it in an unforgettable way, Ray, that will force people to think through what he's saying and the implications. He's basically saying, I'm the issue and the issuer of eternal life in five different ways. And then he uses this very graphic, unforgettable uh, way of expressing that. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man. Wow. And drink his blood. You have no life in yourselves. You can't earn your salvation. I'm the issue. I'm the issuer. Unless you appropriate me by faith in context, You're not going to have eternal life. He who eats my flesh, drinks my blood, appropriates me and my sacrifice on the cross has eternal life. And here's a great promise. This is Jesus saying this to you, Maxine. I myself, or I myself, it's actually earlier in the discourse, I will raise that person up on the last day. Uh, That is a perplexing statement, right? And we're pretending like we've never seen that before. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you kind of buzzed through the Gospel of John and you didn't notice that. Um, what are we going to do with it? Uh, well, my point is, just like I said, it took forever to check out at Walmart, and I didn't really mean forever, and you understood that. Jesus is talking like that here, Donetta, and he's expecting people with no seminary education to get it because if they've been listening to everything he said in this chapter, they couldn't doubt what he meant by what he just said. Okay. However, we got problems. Uh, Not only do some Christians misinterpret this, some of the arch enemies of Christianity have interpreted this. Uh, From the first century until the early fourth century, 313 AD, the ancient Roman Empire specialized in hunting down, arresting, and killing Christians. And a lot of you have heard me say this, but I was shocked when I learned this in church history. The two major charges that would stick against Christians that were arrested by the Romans before they threw them to the lions were two charges you might not believe. Tabor, number one, first charge was atheism. They would arrest us because we were atheists. We didn't believe in their gods. 
We believe in a whole different God. We denied that Jupiter, Zeus, and Mars were gods, right? Uh, the second charge was cannibalism. Can you think of a verse or a saying of Jesus that an enemy of Christianity looking for stuff not to like might misunderstand as cannibalism? Let me suggest one. John 6, 53 and 54. And again, put your Roman anti-Christian, I want to find things to hate about these people so I can justify torturing them, uh, ears on, and listen to what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. That's what it sounds like he's saying. But he doesn't mean what he says. He means what he means by what he says. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I mean, case closed. Boom, throw him to the lions. No problem. Um, by the way, we're going to try to show you this can't mean what it sounds like at first flush based on the context. But just for grins, go to Matthew chapter 26. And let me show you just, just a little subtle thing you might not have noticed before. Matthew 26, 26. Uh, we're in the upper room. We're doing the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. And we read this in Matthew 26, 26. While they were eating the Passover meal at the Last Supper, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had given a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood the blood that signs the contract of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Now, I mentioned the ancient Romans misunderstood statements like that to say, in addition to being atheists, we were all cannibals. The, the Roman Catholic Church, even since Vatican II, defines uh, the Mass, or the what we would call the Lord's Supper part of their Mass, uh, by a term called transubstantiation. And this is a quote from the Catholic Dictionary. Uh, transubstantiation, the, the uh, giving of the cup and the bread in the Lord's Supper in Protestant nomenclature uh, involves uh, the complete change of the substance of the bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood. They're taking this literally by a validly ordained Roman Catholic priest during the consecration at Mass, although the outward appearance of the bread and wine remain unchanged. Uh, transubstantiation is this doctrine that Jesus means what he says here. You've got to eat his flesh and drink his blood multiple occasions at multiple Masses, and although the wafer won't change in appearance, the molecular structure is supernaturally transformed, so you're literally eating his body and his blood. But I'm going to tell you, not only can we easily show you that's not what he's talking about in John 6. We're in Matthew 26 now. Take, eat, this is my body. Drink from this, this is my blood. Look at verse 29. You always got to keep reading. But I say to you, I will not drink of this blood that you've just drank of my blood because we all know based on the doctrine of transubstantiation that the wine turned into my blood. So I say to you, I will not drink of this blood from now on until that day when I drink my blood at my in my Father's kingdom. Doesn't mean that. What does, he, what does he say? How does he explain verse 28? This 
wine in the cup represents my blood. What does he say about it? Verse 29, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine, of this wine uh, from now on until that day when I drink it new with you. They're not going to be drinking his blood in the kingdom. They're going to be drinking wine in the kingdom. We Baptists and teetotalers will be drinking Coke Zero with the rest of them, but uh, that's what that'll happen, right? So you see that? So we're dealing with John 6, 53 and 54. Here's what you don't want to do. You don't want to take a theology class, figure out what John Calvin decided all the verses mean, and read it in your Bible. You don't want to take a theology class and find out what John Wesley thought all the verses mean and read it in your Bible. You don't even want to go, Olga, to your back notes from Brad McCoy, figure out what I said the stuff means, and read it in your Bible. What you want to do is read not verses, not chicken McNuggets, Bible McNuggets, right, Michael? We don't want Bible McNuggets. We want to re eat the whole, these are technical terms, Jared, enchilada. You've got to read the whole enchilada. You've got to read the whole context of the passage, and 98% of the time, it'll tell you exactly what it means. So the context of this radical statement, verses 53-54, are, in fact, is, in fact, the key to understanding what it means. Okay, So I think we can readily admit uh, verses 53 and 54, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Pretty radical, attention-getting, unforgettable statement. Now let's look at the context of that statement, okay? And really, most of chapter 6 revolves around this very controversial statement. It breaks down like this. It's an incredible chapter. First 24 verses of chapter 6, Jesus gives two signs that prove he's the Messiah. First, he feeds about 12,000 people from one little boy's Happy Meal. There's 5,000 men on there, male-specific, plus most of them had wives and a bunch of them had kids. So how does 5,000 equal at least 12,000? We got 5,000 men in first century Israel, 99% of whom are going to be married with family and kids there, right? So Jesus turned one little boy's lunch into enough food to feed 12,000 people that was a sign to the crowd, to the world, that validated his claims to be the Messiah. Then he walks on the water. That was a sign that evening to the disciples. That really is our Lord and our God. So that's the first 24 verses. We're getting works of Jesus that validate who he is. Then in verses 25 to 59, we have the bread of life discourse where Jesus just tells you who he is. And he tells you, He's the issue and the issuer of eternal life. That's not shocking to you. That's at the very core of your faith. But that's becoming almost hate speech in our culture. How dare you claim Jesus is any better than Buddha or uh, Richard Dawkins or any other great thinker who had a uh, trendy liberal agenda, which he didn't, but uh, they read it into him. So we're going to look at uh, the Bread of Life discourse in a moment. And then after he dares to say he's the issue and the issuer, a lot of people who are interested in him to a certain point just go away. And in fact, Jesus says to the 12, are you going to leave based on that too? You're going to leave because I said I'm the issue? And Peter says, no, we're going to stay with you. You're the one who's got the words of eternal life. So it's very important not to rip, let's say, um, interesting difficult to interpret, shocking statements like verses 53 and 54 out of their context. And their context of those two verses is this teaching session <clears throat> called the Bread of Life Discourse. 
And so let's just work our way through that. On your handout, you've got some key passages we're going to camp on. But look at verse 25. So we can put verse 53 and 54 in their context. When they found him, the day after he had fed 12,000 with one happy boy's lunch, and now we're back in Capernaum on the north uh, east side of the Sea of Galilee, when they found him on the other side of the sea, the lake, the Sea of Galilee, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw that miracle yesterday that should have told you I'm the Messiah, but because you saw me do the miracle at a physical level and want another free lunch. John says certain things Jesus did were designed and important to do to validate his claims as Messiah. Okay? They involve supernatural things you can't reproduce in the laboratory. But even that can be abused. These people, the bulk of them, are following Jesus because they want another free lunch. They want him to set up a welfare program for them. Physical, not just spiritual. As Christians, of course, we're concerned about physical needs of people, but the main thing we're focused on is the spiritual need. And he just says, hey, I know why you guys are here. You want another free lunch. Verse 27, don't work. Don't make rational, do rational acts just for physical food, just for your physical uh, life on earth but be looking for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He's claiming to be the issue and the issuer of eternal life. For on him, the Father, God, God is the author of the plan, has made him the active agent of the plan. You look to Jesus for salvation because he died for our sins and rose again. And the Father, God the Father, set that seal, that uh, mission statement on Jesus. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so we may work the works of God? How do we uh, have a relationship with God? Jesus answered and said to him, This is the work. Ergon doesn't mean meritorious act. It's a rational act, but it's not a meritorious act. Here's what you've got to do to connect with God. You've got to believe in him whom he has sent. Now, people rip that out of context and say he's talking about works. No, he's talking about faith. Who's him and he? Well, in the context. Right? Verse 27. Uh, don't focus just on the physical need. Focus also on the spiritual, which the Son of Man, which Jesus, referring to himself as by that title there, will give to you for on him, on the Son of Man, on Jesus the Father, has set his seal. That's the, their functions in the Trinity. So Jesus says, this is the work of God. You sincerely want to do the works of God. You want to connect with God. Believe in him, the Son of Man, whom God the Father has sent. So, uh, Look at those two verses. Very important here. This is the first thing he says about how to access eternal life in the Bread of Life discourse. They just basically ask him a clumsy question, and he responds at the level of the question just like that's all you can do. If they pitch you inside, then you pull it. If they pitch you outside, you just try to put the fat part of the bat on. If it goes to the right field, that's fine. When you're trying to pull outside pitches, you're going to look awkward and strike out a lot. I know because I did that in my, throughout my high school career. You know, it's great. Uh, but uh, I did that in softball. That's how bad I was. But uh, therefore they said to him, how do we access God? Believe. That's what Jesus says, okay? Now, pick it up, verse 30. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign to prove you can make those kind of claims? And he's thinking, what do I do for a sign? I just fed 12,000 of you ingrates from a little boy's happy lunch to prove who I was just yesterday. 
You do something right, nobody ever remembers. You do something wrong, nobody ever forgets. I'm just telling you. <laughs> just so you'll know. Uh, what do you do for a sign? And he's going, come on, guys, get with the program that we may see and believe. See, you just haven't given us enough signs. That's the problem. What work do you perform? Prove you the Messiah. Jesus says, hey, let me tell you what you need to know. Our fathers, way back during the Exodus, ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, God gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you. And, and all those people were very familiar with that story and the, the whole deal in Hebrew. Uh, but I'm telling you, it wasn't Moses who gave you that bread out of heaven. It was my father, and my father ultimately gave the manna as a visual aid for the capital B bread that comes out of heaven. But it's my father who gives you the true bread, and he's probably pointing at himself, that comes out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life not just to Israel, but to the world. Here's the surprise, big surprise in the New Testament, Dr. Deeg. The Jewish Messiah is the Savior of the world. That's the big surprise uh, of the New Testament. Then they said to him, Lord, then just give us this bread every day. You know, he's going to work all the time. Is a, you know, just interrupts our social life, you know. Just keep giving us the bread. They're still talking physical. And he says, I'm not talking about physical bread. I am the bread of life I'm talking about. He who comes to me will not hunger. What does he mean, come to me? Well, keep reading. He who believes in me will never thirst. What did he say the first time they asked him? How do you connect with God? Believe. What does he say now, first time he introduces the metaphor, bread of life, I'm the bread of life? Believe. Now, you know, do you guys believe that? If you believe it, I'm asking you, uh, why do we have church potlucks? If if he says, you know, if you uh, believe in me, come to me, you won't hunger. And believe in me, never thirst. The, the older I get, the less I want to exercise and the more I want to eat. Is that affecting you at all that way, Ken? I don't know, you're, you're kind of a more hardcore exerciser than I am. Yeah, the, the less I want to exercise, the more I want to eat. He's obviously talking spiritual here, right? He's not saying if you're truly born again, you never need to eat again. Uh, I don't know this for sure, but as a theologian trying to amplify things I read about heaven, I'm convinced in heaven you can eat all you want to and never gain any weight. Okay? I think everybody's going to be very fit. I also think we're going to enjoy meals together. But right now, the most important exercise in the world is called pushaways, not pull-ups. Pushaways. You eat a, mono, you know, a moderate amount of food. I'm preaching myself here. And then you push away. You know? That's the most important exercise. So he's just going through this systematically and saying, you've got to believe in me, you've got to believe in me. I'm the issue, I'm the issue, I'm the issue, and the issue were of eternal life. Look at verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me, you've seen the bread of life, you've seen the Messiah, but you don't believe yet. All that the Father gives me will come to me. I'm not going to miss anybody. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That's a pretty neat verse, Nicole. You know, as somebody who's come to Jesus, he's not going to cast you out. Nobody is so bad they can't have salvation. Nobody is so good they don't need it. All countries, cultures, and colors are invited. This idea we're very uh, exclusive. We're not very receptive. Hey, we're open to anybody. God's equal rights amendment. Whosoever will may come, right? For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will. I've taken a lower role. We talked about that last week. He's the sendee. 
but the will of him who sent me. God the Father's role is the sender. God the Son's the sendee. Look at this. Love these two verses. This is the will of him who sent me, the author of the plan of salvation, that of all he's given to me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. That's theology. Now let's talk about practicality. Verse 40. Let me say that again so you can really access it, guys. This is the will of my Father, the author of the plan of salvation. Jesus is the active agent of salvation. That everyone who beholds the Son with the eyes of faith and believes in him will have eternal life. Uh, it does you no good to wonder about whether or not you're saved. If you've trusted Christ, it's a rational act. What must we do to connect with God? Believe on him whom he's, believe on the one he sent, right? Believe in him whom he has sent. Uh, I'm the bread of life. Believe in me, you won't thirst. Everyone who beholds the Son with the eyes of faith and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. You know, if he, if he said, uh, and Peter will raise you up on the last day, Peter might forget, right? He said, Peter, James, and John, they might forget. Uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, they might have gotten the paperwork wrong. But Jesus himself says, I will raise that person up on the last day. Keep reading. We're look, working through the Bread of Life discourse, so when we get to verses 53 and 54, they'll make sense in that context in which they were spoken. Therefore, the Jews. In the Gospel of John, the term the Jews refers to Jewish leaders that are viscerally anti-Jesus. John, the human author, is not an anti-Semite. John was a Jew. All the disciples were Jews. He's not anti-Semite. Some people pull those out and say he's talking about the dirty Jews. He's not talking about the dirty Jews. He's talking about the Jewish leaders that are watching, observing, and trying to keep the crowds from getting too excited about Jesus. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they're saying, who does this guy think he is? He doesn't even have a seminary degree. Is not this Yeshua? This is just Yeshua, you know, the son of Joseph who was a tecton, a carpenter, uh, whose father and mother we know. Uh, how does he say now, I've come down to heaven? And Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Who's the one who is from God? That would be Jesus, right? We talked about a couple weeks ago. When you see God in the Bible, you're seeing Jesus, even in the Old Testament. When we're told that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day before the fall, that's a pre-incarnate human form, Jesus in human form uh, in the garden. No man has seen God at any time, but the unique member of the Trinity, he has revealed him. That's John 1.18. Jesus here says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. God's invisible, transcendent, real, but not material, right? And he just says that again here. Uh, we're working toward verse 47. Here we are, watch. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Now, keep... Okay, you see a pattern here? I mean, it's just a consistent pattern. How do we access God? You've got to believe. I'm the bread of life. You believe you won't thirst. This is the will of God. Everyone who believes has eternal life. I'll raise him up. 
Verse 47, I say to you, the one who believes has eternal life. You see a pattern there? Boom, boom, boom. Very clear, very clear, very clear. Then he's going to talk about appropriating him with a very unforgettable metaphor, eat and drink. He's not meaning you've got to physically take a mass, transubstantiation, cannibalism, anything like that. You just can't read that in the context if you read the whole paragraph, uh, the whole discourse, I should say. Uh, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and it sustained them day by day, but they all end up dying physically. The whole generation died out. You remember that, right? But this bread he's talking about, I am the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Everyone who sees me and believes will never really die, he tells uh, the sister of Lazarus. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give uh, for the life of the world, Jewish Messiah is the Savior of the world, is my flesh. It was a physical act in time-space history, David, uh, that got your salvation. If you could go back in a time machine, you'd really, April 3rd, 33 AD, we can show you exactly where it took place. We've been there. <laughs> you, you see it. It's not just a spiritual thing. It's a physical thing with spiritual ramifications, right? So he's just pounding away, clearly, I think, as clearly as you possibly could. This is what the deal is. Now, let's sneak up on our verse here we're concerned about. Um, verse 52. Then the Jewish leaders who are there to observe and complain, it only takes two or three people complaining usually to get everybody upset, uh, began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? All they're hearing is bread, bread, bread. At that point, you know, if we're grading them, John, at seminary level, we'd have to give them an F minus, wouldn't we? I mean, how in the world could they think he's talking about bread when he's saying, I'm the bread out of heaven, believe, 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 believe. I'm the bread that was physical. I'm spiritual, eternal life. Believe, believe, believe. I'm the issue. I'm the issue. I'm the issue of eternal life. And they totally miss it. How can he give us a body to eat? Jesus, okay, you want, you want to eat my body? I'm going to give you one final unforgettable uh, bombastic, uh, confounding, controversial statement that you'll go home with and chew on, hopefully. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you appropriate me as the Savior, eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. Judaism, Protestantism is not going to save anybody. Good works can't save anybody. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I'll raise him up on the last day. If you rip that out of context and or could find a lot of major passages that talk about physically eating the blood and the body of Jesus, then maybe you could build a doctrine around it. But if you're reading John 6 for the first time or listening to Jesus physically give this discourse, I think that would be the thing you'd be talking about when you went home. But, uh, and I would just say, I'll use you two guys as examples. We're going to put you 2,000 years back in history. You're there. Scott is, uh, you know, once Jesus starts talking about food, Scott's thinking about food, thinking about lunch, you know. Nancy's actually listening hard. She's hearing all the statements about believe, believe, believe. He's the issue. Uh, but when, as they walk home after this discourse is over, uh, the only thing Scott's going to remember is, wow, he said we got to eat his flesh and drink his blood. That's why the person who listens to the whole thing says, yeah, after he four times said you've got to believe in him, he's talking about appropriating him. The very graphic, unforgettable, albeit controversial metaphor. One thing the Gospel of John Myrna really emphasizes is Jesus goes out of his way 
to say things he knows can be easily misunderstood, but which can be accessed if you really want to know and you think about it. Right? He doesn't cram it down your throat. Uh, when he tells Nicodemus, the old guy, worried about his mortality, you got to be born again. What does Nicodemus say? How can I go back in my mom's womb and start over? Is Jesus talking about physical birth when he says you got to be born again? He's talking about spiritual. Nicodemus doesn't understand it, but he gets it later, right? When he goes a little bit north to the woman at the well, John 4, and she's uh, such an outcast among Samaritans, she's out there at noon. Nobody in the Middle East gets their water at noon. You get it in the cool of the day and right before sunset. She's going in the in the, middle of the day because she's an outcast among Samaritans. She's been married and divorced five times. She's living with her boyfriend. And Jesus says, if you'd ask me, I'd give you living water. She says, hey, the well's deep. You don't have a bucket. How are you going to get me water? He's talking about spiritual living water. And here he's talking about the spiritual. And I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit permits every uh, listener at that discourse who really wants to know to understand what that means. It doesn't mean what he said. It means what he means by what he said. Now, to me, he might say, well, golly, I'm, just, I'm a modern American. I'm not going to read that whole discourse just to get that. Well, I'm going to have to say, shame on you. That's the only way it's going to work. However, what I would like to do, just to kind of fast track it, if I'm seeing a statement like this, especially key on verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Is there anywhere else in this context where he says, if you do something, you'll have eternal life, and I'll raise you up on the last day. And I would say, yeah. Go back to verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Does that sound familiar? I myself will raise him up on the last day? What did he just say in verse 54? In other words, to use an unforgettable graphic controversial, easily misunderstood unless you really want to know and think about it and the Spirit opens the eyes to see, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Does that sound familiar? I think you always use the first thing to interpret the second thing. Like You, you have to take arithmetic before you can take algebra, right? And you have to take trig before you can take calculus. So you just can't do calculus if you don't know 1 plus 1 equals 2. You can't. It's not going to work. So I think in a passage like this, Jesus is getting more and more complicated. To, in, in that last statement, I think it's designed to be controversial and confounding, but it's not beyond the uh, reach of the thinking heart because God's going to show you just based on what he said up to that and after it, what it means. I myself will raise him up in the last day. All right. Uh, take this to heart, also known as what difference does that make? You might say, who cares? I would say you really ought to care about being a good Bible reader, period. Okay, No apologies. But I would say, uh, I never forget, and, and by God's grace, he's wiped my memory on what TBFers said this, so I can't quote them when I write my book, and I'm going to write one, so you better be nice. Um, but I got a lot of material. It's great. But... Uh, i never forget, somebody came to prayer meeting a long time ago and said, Brad, you just did that series on the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, 
and we had a Jehovah's Witness come to our, two of them come to our house uh, uh, last weekend, and they had a Bible. Like, what's the problem? Uh, when Satan tempts Christ, you know what he quotes three times? He quotes the Bible. That's what, in Hebrew, you know, Aramaic. Uh, yeah, so I would say this. Observation and interpretation without context. And by context, I mean the immediate context. The couple of verses before in the paragraph and the whole discourse, that's the immediate context. Correlation is when you look at other relevant passages. And um, I'll tell you what that means in this case in a moment. But I would just say observation and interpretation. Looking at a passage and trying to interpret it without relating it to the context, especially these controversial, uh, kind of obscure, harder to understand thing, is like the blind leading the blind. And when the blind leadeth the blind, you better get out of the way, right? I mean, uh, if you ask the old-timers at Duncan Country Club, they'll never forget Bill Shelton's last drive in the golf cart. It was one for the ages. I mean, he hit a tree, two people, and killed a cat, you know, trying to get home. And at that point, they said, you're blind, you can't drive a golf cart anymore, okay? Uh, that's what that was. Um, clear passages must be the basis for interpreting more obscure ones. Just like one plus one you learn in the first day of first grade, that will never change. It doesn't change when you take calculus. You just learn a lot more ramifications of what numbers can do and what they can describe. It's pretty amazing. I think somebody built that into the universe. But I would say, like I said, the fast track for me, if you don't want to read that whole, all those 50 verses or whatever, I would go back to the context and see a strictly parallel statement. Raise him up in the last day. Believe, raise him up in the last day. Eat and drink, raise him up in the last day. Some of the same thing in two different ways, right? So I think that's very, very important. Uh, now, I know some people go, oh, my gosh, you know, if i got to read the whole context, how can I get this? Uh, I love this, and Howard Hendricks taught us this at Dallas Seminary. It's really true. The main things in Scripture are plain things, and they get repeated a lot. And even though there's always going to be a place for uh, teachers and pastor teachers in the local church, uh, don't let anybody get between you and your Bible. I mean, basically a teachable heart and a believer who's aware of context and has a good translation can get pretty much what you need. Uh, when I say the main things in Scripture, I'd say one main thing in Scripture would be, uh, what do you have to do to be saved? I mean, <laughs> you know what? I'm a nine-year-old kid in the back row of Southern Baptist Revival, Opelika, Florida, and I thought for the first 40 minutes, this guy who was painting sin black and hell hot, I thought, Jared, what the evangelist was saying was don't ever sin because sinners die and go to hell. Because that's all he said for 40 minutes. And he's right, you know. As Jesus said, unless you believe I'm he, you'll die in your sin, right? If you die in your sin, you've got a problem. Uh, that's all I heard. And then finally, he finally mentioned the good news. The fact that if you die in your sin, you go to hell isn't good news. It's true, but it isn't good news. Gospel means good news, right? Gospel is the good news that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or as Jesus himself explains it, gospel in a verse, Martin Luther, uh, God the Father is the author of the plan, loved the world so much, he gave his unique monogamous son, boom, that whosoever, the Greek text says, that all of the ones who believe shall not, future tense, like the fire kind of death, perish, but have present abiding possession 
eternal life. Now, talking about main things or plain things, in the Gospel of John, uh, we're told that the whole book is written uh, for this reason. Many other signs Jesus also performed, which are not written in this book, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing Gary Kopus and Derek McPherson and Lloyd Davis might have eternal life in his name, right? Ninety nine zero times in the Gospel of John, we're told that receiving eternal life comes by believing in Jesus. One time, we're told, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, I guess really two times, you have eternal life. The main things are plain things that get repeated a lot. You use the main things to help you understand the more obscure things. And that's a great guide. And that's a great principle. And I would just say that believers who understand the Bible doesn't always mean what it says. It means what it means by what it says. Believers who understand that and will apply that principle are a very, very, very special breed of cat. And that was a figure of speech too. I will close. Father, help us to realize you really do want to reveal yourself in the Scripture. It's more of a heart issue than a head issue, but there are some basic procedures we got to know. And just ripping verses out of context and reading our own meaning into them or getting obscure attention-grabbing figures of speech and starting there to build an understanding of the terms of salvation is just not a valid way to read the Scripture. It's just counter-contextual, counter-logical, and it's just not going to work. So help us uh, as a church that's got the Bible in our middle name and kind of prides ourselves on doing Bible exposition and not so much Bible McNuggets, but kind of poached chicken uh, with a baked potato, no French fries or uh, uh, high uh, calorie uh, desserts after necessarily. Help us to realize, Father, that we need to be seeking you with our heart as we open the scripture when we're in the word ourselves, seeking you when we sit and listen to the Word of God being taught, which is why we pray for teachability. But help us not to despair. I don't want Riley to think, oh my goodness, if I don't go to seminary, I can't understand verses like this. I just want Riley to understand, everybody in the room to understand. Just read the whole passage before you jump to conclusions about eating and drinking the flesh, which obviously are designed to be attention-giving, unforgettable, but don't mean what they mean. And don't mean what they say. They mean what they mean by what they say. I really believe you, you, you want to help us to see and believe what you're telling us in Scripture, but we take shortcuts and we rip verses out of context and we just don't get the right answers. So help us as a, a body of believers to be excited about the fact you want to speak to us through the Word. You speak and you don't stutter, but we're going to have to read the, the Scripture on its terms, the way it's intended uh, to truly understand it. So I pray that uh, as important as that is, we'd realize that that's just one step in a process. It's one thing for us to understand Scripture. It's even more important for us to stand it and then apply it to the way we think and the way we live and the choices we make in our lives. And that's what we're wanting to do. And we're praying that your Holy Spirit, who inspired this text, will enlighten it for us as we read it and study it so we can live it out and apply it uh, to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.